Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. He was smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet there was a rich man in his death. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would offer himself as a guilt offering. And then God promised he would see his offspring. He would prolong his days. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Holy Father, thank you that you literally fulfilled this prophecy concerning your son. That everything in this chapter that you wrote of actually happened just as you said. We are just in awe of the makeup and the complexion of your holy word. Only you could have written it and only you could have foretold the future. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are willing to offer yourself as a guilt offering, that you were pierced through for our iniquities. You were crushed for our well-being. Thank you for your willingness to serve as a substitute, to bear the very wrath that we deserve. And we thank you, our Father, that you raised him up, that he sees his spiritual offspring today And that someday, because you've raised him from the dead, you've declared him to be Lord and the one who will judge all men, the living and the dead. So help us to be faithful stewards of the gospel in the week that is in front of us. Help us to truly care about the people that we will see and meet. Help us to see past our own selfish needs and to see an eternity that lays before each and every person, either blessed or horrible. Help us this week. Give us opportunities, we pray with Paul, for an open door to be able to share your son, Jesus. Now we are coming today, Father, to feed on your word because it is truth. You said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Thank you for the power of your word. It's cleansing power to change us, to uh, recalibrate the way we think about our lives, about others, and about eternity. And we ask as we open your word that we would be humble and that we would tremble before it as the psalmist said, and that you would teach us and instruct us and illuminate what is here, that we would be more than those who just hear, but those who are willing to obey. Come and help me, Father, fill me, use me, I pray, as we meet, for meet the pastor in Bluffton and in Hilton Head, and later tonight on this campus, for those that are looking for a church home, for those who are looking for Christ. May you bless those meetings, and we ask it now in Jesus' name, amen. Take God's word. Would you turn to the book of Revelation chapter 1? Revelation chapter 1. We have been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great book. And actually, when you come to the 13th chapter, you come to the middle of the book. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. If the 13th chapter is the middle of the book, that would mean there's 26 chapters. Well, it's the middle of the book. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, and I didn't want to break up the 13th chapter, but I thought here in the middle of the book, 
it would be helpful for us to stop, to pause, to reflect, and to think about why it is we are studying the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 3. It's a unique challenge found only in the book of Revelation. Here in the first chapter, the third verse, let me read it to you. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. God is telling us here today, read me, read this book, I am special, and if you read me and hear me and heed this book, you will receive a special blessing from God Almighty. Now, there are many general admonitions all the way through the Word of God to meditate on it, to saturate your mind in truth, but this is the only book in all the Bible that invites you to read it, to heed it, that you might be blessed in the process. Blessed is he who reads. Now, that particular admonition would especially be true of a first century lector, because remember, in the first century, there were no printed Bibles. There were scrolls that usually were deposited in one central place. You, if you were very wealthy, might own a page of Scripture or maybe even a book of Scripture, but very few had any complete Bible except where they were deposited, and you would go there for the weekly reading of Scripture or sometimes the daily reading of Scripture. So God gave an admonition and a word of encouragement to the person who would read it. Now, with that said, we live in a country where virtually a Bible is within hand's reach. You can find one in any town, in any place, and you could still apply this truth for your reading of the Scripture. And I don't want to embarrass anyone, but I wonder how many of us in the last year have just read through the book of Revelation. This is an encouragement to us because, again, this is not the Word of man. This is the Word of God. And then he says, not only he who reads, but he who hears. He who hears, and I mean really hear it. You can hear it with your physical ears, but not with your spiritual ears. And Christ throughout the Gospels made that distinction. People who hear, but they don't really hear. And John is talking about people who really hear. Where three hours after the sermon, they haven't forgotten what's been said. They've heard it. They've embraced it. And God says, if you read it, if you hear it, and then if you heed it, if you obey it, that you will be blessed. There's a blessing when you take what you have heard and you apply it to your life. And when you think of Bible prophecy, especially the book of Revelation, where the major portion is all prophetic, when you think of prophecy, you should ask, how is this prophecy that I am studying changing my life. That's critical. And then he uh, closes the verse by saying, for the time is near. You could render it, the season is near. The next era of God's redemptive plan in history is close at hand. It is imminent. It could happen at any moment. And so as we will remind ourselves today, The New Testament speaks of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Now, John wrote that some 2,000 years ago. And if the return of Christ was imminent 2,000 years ago, how much more in our time? And so I want to ask the question this morning, what time is it? Not on your clock, but what time is it on God's clock? 
Turn to the book of Romans. We're going to look at a number of scripture this morning, but we'll turn to Romans chapter 13 for a moment. Romans, the 13th chapter, because this is a very important question to ask and answer, because remember, Jesus taught, the apostles taught, that the terminal generation, you say, what do you mean by that? There's a generation of people that will be the last generation of people on the earth before Jesus comes, and that could be our generation. And God warns that the terminal generation will be characterized by lukewarmness and lethargy. There'll be an apathy even in the church, even in the body of Christ. You know, some of you communicate, unfortunately, by your body language that you're bored, you yawn, you do this and teach me if you can, Pastor. I don't want to judge you. Maybe your arms are sore and they feel better like that. I don't know. But listen, the hour is late and most people do not have eyes to see it. We live in a time in human history where there is apathy that has just covered over the church. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 13, verse 11. Do this knowing the time that, is already, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to you when, than when, you, when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its loss. Now, some of us have very little difficulty waking up in the morning. Others of us struggle when the alarm clock rings. No two of us, I suppose, are exactly alike. We have a granddaughter, and she'd come into our room at 6 a.m. I'm hungry. She'd wake up at the crack of dawn. Some people, the thought of food in the morning is repulsive. Some have to wake up and have their coffee. Others have to have their orange juice. I had a roommate in college, and he'd raise the blinds at 6 a.m., and he'd say, get up, car, we're going running. Well, then he got married, and that didn't last too long. But waking up is important. Now, there are 55 references in the New Testament to waking up. Some of them speak of a literal waking up from sleep. But many of them refer to a metaphorical waking up, a spiritual waking up out of the carnality of the day. And that's what we're really looking at this morning. So three points, very simple on your outline. Number one, it is time to wake up. If you have ears to hear, it is time to wake up. And when you read verse 11, God's alarm clock is beginning to sound. Notice how it begins with two words, do this, do this. Now let's ask a question, to whom is Paul speaking? Remember, he's speaking to believers. The book of Romans has three critical divisions. One through eight is the doctrinal section, where he deals with justification, sanctification, glorification. Chapters 9 through 11 is the national section. It deals with Israel, how God elected Israel, chapter 9, how Israel is in unbelief and rejection, chapter 10, but how God will restore the people of Israel in the future, chapter 11. 
But when you come to the 12th chapter, he comes to the applicational, doctrinal, national, applicational. And so the 12th chapter says, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, he's speaking to brethren. He's speaking to born again, blood-bought children of God in this section of scripture. Do this knowing the time that is already, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Now, unsaved people cannot wake up until they're born again. Prior to conversion, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and dead people don't wake up. And apart from the miracle of a second birth, there is no life. And so while non-Christians are described as dead, the true Christian can be described, spiritually speaking, as asleep, and we need to wake up. And Paul has already told us in the beginning of this applicational section, don't be conformed to the world. Don't let the world mold you into its structure, but be transformed. How? Through the renewing of your mind. That's where the word of God comes in. Because when you're born again, you receive the mind of Christ. You have a new ability to receive truth, to see things that you didn't see or couldn't understand before you were saved. Why? Because a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. But we have the mind of Christ. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book years ago, How Then Shall We Live?, He's now home with the Lord, but I, I remember it. I was a relatively new Christian. It was in the mid-1970s, and they had a film series that came with it. But there was one section of the book that grabbed my attention, and he wrote these words. In a declining culture, one of its characteristics is that the ordinary people are unaware of what is happening. Only those who know and can read the signs of decadence are posing the questions that as yet have no answers. Mr. Average Man is comfortable in his complacency and is as unconcerned as a silver fish in a carton of discarded magazines on world affairs. He's not asking any questions because his social benefits from the government give him a false sense of security. This is his trouble and his tragedy. Modern man has become a spectator of world events, observing on his television without becoming involved. He watches the ominous events of our times pass before his eyes while he sips his beer in a comfortable recliner. He doesn't seem to realize what is happening. He does not understand his world is on fire and that he is about to be burned up with it. That's true of the dead man. That's the way you come into this world. Your body is physically alive, but it is spiritually dead. And when you move past the age of accountability, which is different for different children, you're dead in the arms of the evil one, blinded to the truth of the gospel. But the saved person has been born again. And unless you are born again, the scripture says you will not enter the kingdom of God. And so God is shouting to those who have been made alive, Wake up! And we need to ask, especially in our day, what time is it? I would to God that the church in America would wake up because I believe we are a sleeping giant. I look out at these services that we're having today and I've seen hundreds and hundreds of people and sometimes I think, God, what would happen if we were all awake? What would happen if each of us truly, genuinely owned the Great Commission? 
as you go, make disciples, make converts, preach the gospel to the whole world, gossip the gospel. Everywhere you go, trying to see people come to Christ, sparking an interest in the things of God in their heart. What could happen? Yet, unfortunately, many come and all they do is attend. They don't really serve anywhere, have no plans to serve. They may even come to an adult Bible fellowship, and I wish more of us did. Only about a third of all the adults even attend the ABFs. That will dramatically change your involvement in this church. That's a church within a church. That's where you meet people, where you can care for people. If you're not sure where to go, start with the discovery class because it's a 45-week discipleship course, not just for the new Christian, but it's also for the believer who wants to know how to disciple someone else. But you see, we live in a day where people are more concerned about their favorite football team, their Facebook page, or their favorite television show than they really are in the things of God. And I'm talking about God's people. I think of Napoleon as he visited China, and he said this, there lies a sleeping giant, as he saw the millions of people, even in his day, there lies a sleeping giant, and let him sleep, because if he awakens, he will shake the world. And I think sometimes God may be thinking, there lies in my church a sleeping giant, and if she were to wake she would shake the world. Now remember, at the end of time, the Bible teaches that most of God's people will be asleep. You can be saved but sleeping. Jesus gave this warning, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now, if they needed to wake up in the Apostle Paul's day, how much more do they need to wake up in our day? If you even know a little bit about the Bible, If you know the slightest amount of Bible prophecy, then you know that the stage is being set for the return of God's Son from heaven. Please notice carefully what he says here in verse 11. Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Well, why is that, Paul? For, or you could say because, it's a causal, because now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now, what does it mean that salvation is nearer to us than when we believed? You see here in verse 11 that Paul is speaking of another dimension of our salvation. Now, sometimes people will read a verse like this. I don't get it, Paul. You've already said in Romans 5.1 that we have been justified by faith. We've been saved. We have peace with God. What are you talking about this near salvation? already have this salvation. Well, listen, if some brash evangelist asks you if you are saved, you could say no and yes. Though it would be better to say really correctly yes and no. Yes in the sense, if you have been saved, if you have been born again, that you have been justified, that you have been saved from the penalty of sin. When you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, all of your sin, past, present, and future, is forever forgiven. You are declared righteous. You are clothed in a robe of righteousness forever, and that position can never, ever, ever be changed. 
But not only is there a present dimension to salvation, there's a future dimension as well. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. That's in the past. We're being saved right now as we grow in Christ from the power of sin. We refer to that generally as sanctification. But some glorious day when Jesus comes back from his, for his church, we'll be saved from the very presence of sin and our salvation will be complete. And that's what he's looking at here in verse 11. This salvation is nearer to you than when you believe. He is speaking of that time when Jesus will come back and he will glorify his people. Now think your way through this. This is very important. The moment you get saved, you are immediately saved in your spirit. The Bible speaks in Hebrews 12 and 23 of the spirits of just men made perfect. My spirit is perfect in the sight of God. It's never going to get any better. But the scripture speaks of us on three levels. Now, sometimes in a broad sense, the soul can encompass the whole immaterial portion of man. But most technically in the Bible, God speaks of body, soul, and spirit. My spirit is immediately made perfect, but my soul, that is my mind, my will, my emotions, my suke, we get our word psychology from it, that's a work in progress. God is shaping me. He's conforming me into the image of his son. And yet there's a coming day when my body will be changed. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It's a graphic piece of language that he's using when he describes the creative world around us. When Adam fell, all of creation fell with it. And so this week we witnessed a a hurricane that came upon Hawaii and volcanoes that are exploding and wildfires even in our own country and and there's uh, earthquakes in the last two weeks that have gone off in a number of different different places around the world that's just god putting on us on notice that the creation is groaning that it has fallen and so we see expressions of that really month to month but not only is the creation groaning we're groaning he then says in romans 8 23 and not only this But also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Substitute in your mind the word salvation there for redemption, and you'll get the meaning of Romans 13, 11. See, the salvation that is nearer to you than when you believed is that time when Jesus comes back and he takes you to heaven and you receive a glorified body like his. Paul will say in Philippians 3.21, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So I've been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. I am being saved right now from the power of sin, but some glorious day I'll be saved from the very presence of sin. Christ will come back, and so he begins that epistle with these great words, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will absolutely complete it, perfect it, until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, that day is nearer to us than when we first believed, because every day that goes by, we are one day closer either to our own physical death or we are one day closer to Jesus coming back from heaven. 
And so he who focuses on the reality, as this verse is speaking of, Christ coming back from heaven, he who focuses on his return, John says, purifies himself. If you really understand Bible prophecy correctly, it will have a purifying effect on your life. It will change the way you live today. And that's why here in the middle of the Revelation, I want us to just stop and ask, am I being changed by this study of prophecy? Or am I just becoming a smarter sinner? Am I being more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus? Is he making me more like himself? Now, this motivation to live with the return of Jesus in mind should be a transforming experience. Do you remember when Paul uh, answered some of the questions that the church at Thessalonica asked him about? One of the questions they asked him about was concerning those who have already died before the return of Christ. And they wanted to know, they, they knew and believed, because the Old Testament affirmed it, that there would be a bodily resurrection uh, of God's people. But what they didn't understand was the order of events and how it would unfold. And so Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. He said, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That, by the way, if you're new to the Bible, is the next great event on God's prophetic calendar. It's called the rapture. It's called the harpazo. Every once in a while, you'll meet someone say, well, the, the word rapture is not found in the Bible. Well, it's not found in our English Bible. There's a lot of words that aren't found even in our English Bible that we embrace as true because they represent theological expressions of what God has revealed, like the word Trinity, not found in the Bible, but that there is one God who lives in three co-eternal persons. I was witnessing to a Jewish man just a couple of days ago and he said to me, well, do you know in the opening verse of the Bible that the word God is in the plural? And his thesis was, is that there was not one God, but many gods. And of course, I quoted to him, Elohim, in the beginning created God, and it is plural. In the beginning, singular verb, plural noun. And I said, no, the Bible does not teach that there's a multiplicity of gods. I said, think about it. You grew up going to synagogue. Yes, but I'm non-religious today. What did you say every Saturday? The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. There is one God who exists in three persons. And even in kernel form in the opening chapter of the Bible, in the beginning, God, plural, created, singular verb, the heavens and the earth. Let us make man in our image. And God begins to unfold that revelation. So the doctrine of the Trinity, the word Trinity is not a Bible word. It's a Bible thought. And the word rapture is actually a Bible word from the Latin translation, which was used more than any other translation in the history of the church. If you want to know what is the most widely used translation in all of church history, it's Latin. It was the exclusive translation of Christians around the world for 1,000 years. And that's why we get this word rapto that comes into English as rapture. Now, I don't care what you call it. 
You can call it the harpazo. You can call it the catching up. You can call it the rapture. But the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the catching up of the church. And it's important that you distinguish in your theology the difference between the second coming and the rapture because they are two different events. As this uh, next chart shows us, the rapture is the event where Christ comes for his church. We are caught up uh, and the dead in Christ rise for, first, and those of us who are alive at that event will meet the Lord in the air. Uh, we meet the Lord in the air at the rapture. He takes us to heaven, and this uh, event is called the day of Christ in the Bible. We're at the second coming. We come back with him. We get glorified bodies. We go to heaven. We are... Uh, evaluated for our service in Christ. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. And then we come back with the Lord Jesus to the earth. That event is known as the Day of the Lord. It begins a very important time. That has yet to take place, of course, but it's a distinct event. So you read passages like, uh, we'll meet the Lord in the air, but then you read another passage like this in Zechariah 14. He is speaking of the return of the Messiah. And he says, in that day, his feet, Messiah's feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem. If you've been to Jerusalem and you stand on the Mount of Olives, you look right across at the old city of Jerusalem. You see the Temple Mount where the Temple once stood, and you see that ancient city. It's a city really within a city. It's only two and a half miles around in circumference, the old city. But nonetheless, Jesus is going to come back in the very mountain that he ascended up into heaven from, he is going to literally come back and he's going to split that mountain into and create a large valley. And the Bible says there will be living water that will flow all the way to the Dead Sea. Have you ever been to the Dead Sea or read about it? You know it is the saltiest place on earth. It not only is it the lowest place on earth, it is the saltiest place on earth. Absolutely nothing, not even the smallest microorganism can live in the Dead Sea. The Bible says the day is coming when they're going to fish in the Dead Sea and they're going to dry their nets next to it. That has never happened. It is going to happen when the Messiah returns. Two distinct events. Nothing, as I've told you, prophetically has ever needed to happen for the rapture to take place. It's an imminent event. Whereas all kinds of things need to happen for the second coming to take place. So we studied, if you were here last time in Revelation 13, of a one world government, of a one world mark, of a one world leader, of a one world false prophet that will rule the world. But nothing has ever needed to take place since Pentecost for Jesus to come and catch up his church. And that's why the New Testament writers speak of the imminent return of Christ. For instance, in Philippians 4, the apostle Paul wrote, the Lord is near. Listen to what James wrote in the fifth chapter. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. 1 Peter 4, 7, the apostle Peter said, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. 1 John 2, the same apostle that wrote the revelation said, children, it is the last hour. And in the closing verses of the revelation, he says, quoting Jesus, yes, I am coming quickly and believing that it could happen even in his day, John will pray, amen, come, even so come, Lord Jesus. His coming 
could happen at any moment. But listen, what is so breathtaking is that God is setting the stage for the second coming. I've told you many times when you go into Walmart around Halloween in October and you see the Christmas decorations go up, you know that Thanksgiving is near. Why? Because Thanksgiving happens before Christmas. And when you see the signs for the second coming take place, you know that the rapture that must precede the second coming must be all that much closer. If you were with us two Wednesday nights ago, we did a devotion around the new covenant. That's what we celebrate. This is the blood of the new covenant. Where does that idea come from? Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. And in those passages, he speaks of Israel in the future becoming recipients of a new covenant. Because of their unbelief, God is now working in a Gentile church. He's saving Gentiles, not exclusively. There's a partial hardening on the Jews. But for the most part, believers in Christ today are Gentiles. But a future day is coming where all Israel is going to be saved. But for that to happen, God first predicted he would have to regather them back into the land. Listen to what God said to the prophet Ezekiel. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own lands. Ezekiel writes about that. Isaiah writes about it. Jeremiah writes about it. Moses writes about it in Deuteronomy 30, that at the end of time, the end of time, not the last days, the end of time in the latter days, God would gather his people from the nations of the world and bring them back into the land of Israel. It's absolutely amazing that God is doing it. Who would have ever thought a hundred years ago that they would live to see that event literally fulfilled in their day? We are seeing it with our own eyes, where in one day, God said they'd become a nation again in one day, and they did on May the 14th. 1948, only 600,000 Jews in Israel at the time, now 6.5 million Jews who have been gathered across the world. Who would have ever imagined that we would be living in what Jesus called the days of Noah, days of moral permissiveness, and the days of Lot, days of moral perversion, homosexuality. Friends, it is everywhere. And if you don't have eyes to see it, then you are blind and you don't understand how late it is on God's clock. Now, God's ways are not our ways. And certainly one day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. But listen, God said in his word that when you see these things take place, look up because your redemption is drawing near. We are living in a day when the rapture could break out at any moment. And so Jesus compares his return to heaven with a woman who's in labor. You know, when a woman's pregnant, she has all the signs, doesn't she? And there comes a point where she thinks when she goes to bed, maybe it could be tomorrow. Maybe it could be tonight. And this new baby will come into the world. And my little baby will be able to say, this is my birthday. Well, listen, the signs of pregnancy are everywhere. And when the rapture of the church takes place, then the world will go into labor, the birth pangs that we've been studying in the Revelation. And things like we've not even seen yet will go in a full-blown way. One day, someday, will be the last day. And so Paul is saying here in verse 11, look at the time. 
Surely already your salvation is closer today than when you first believed. So don't waste your life as he's going to admonish us. Don't spend it in foolish temporal things. Wake up, capture the spiritual opportunity and invest in it because it is time to wake up. Secondly, not only is it time to wake up, it is time to get up. It is time to get up. You see, it's one thing to be awake with your eyes open in the bed. It's quite another thing to get up and get up out of that bed. Look at verse 12. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. In other words, get up and go to work. It's one thing trying to wake up. It's quite another thing to get up and to go to work. And by the way, this is a common problem today amongst Christians. We come to church, we attend the adult Bible fellowship, maybe we uh, serve in some capacity, we, we, we worship corporately, and those are good things to do. But then when it's all over, you just yawn and you go right back to sleep. And nothing's really changed. And from week to week, month to month, I'm basically the same old person, and I'm not growing in Christ, and God's not using me in a greater way, and I'm not investing in eternal things because we're asleep. And so he is saying, don't just get up, go to work. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of life. He's saying, take off your pajamas. Put on the armor of light. Get dressed, get ready. You know, when I went to my closet this morning, I I picked what I was going to wear. Now, what I wore today was different from what I wore last night when I got home and it was almost dark and the lawn hadn't been cut in about 10 days and I got out there and started cutting it. But I didn't cut the lawn in my suit. And you shouldn't come to church in your pajamas. You need to wake up. You need to get ready. You need to go to work. You need to put on the armor of light. Let's think our way through that. He is describing just by virtue of the word armor that we are in a war. In describing our war, he said this to the Ephesians. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes, methodia. We got our word methodology from it. The methodology of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, we don't realize that. We think my, my enemy is my wife. My enemy is my husband. My enemy is my boss. No, they're not your enemy. It's not flesh and blood. The real enemy are those forces that are working behind the humans. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is referring to the dark, evil, fallen kingdom of Satan who moves in the world of unbelievers to shape a world system that he is pleased with. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th century, said this to his congregation in London. He said, you may sleep, but you cannot induce the devil to close his eyes. You may see evangelicals asleep, but you will not find falsehood slumbering. The prince of the power of the air keeps his servants well up to their work. If we could get but a glance and see the activities of Satan's servants, we would be astonished by our own sluggishness. 
And so Paul is saying here, listen, put on the armor of light. Listen again to what he said to the Ephesians in the fifth chapter. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, with unbelievers, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, in righteousness, and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, we can do that in different dimensions and in different progressions, but I want to tell you it is a sign of your conversion. Do you really know Jesus? Have you genuinely had a birth from above, or are you a cardboard Christian? Are you just a tear and not a genuine blade of wheat? Well, one way you can know is that someone who has met the Lord is trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. God wants us to do that. He wants us to be little light bulbs moving through this dark world. Is it any wonder, though, that he says this to the believer? You say, wait a minute. Why why would he tell the believer to do this? Because the believer can be swept up through the, uh, through the war of the enemy against his life. In Romans 13, 13, let us behave properly as in the day. Listen, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. When you read a list like this, you say, why would Paul say this to the brethren? Why would he say this to Christians? Because there's not a person in this room, including myself, who could not fall into any of these things. And Paul is humble enough, even the great apostle, and I don't know of a greater Christian who's ever walked the earth than the apostle Paul, but he includes himself in the first person plural pronoun in verse 12, let us, not let you, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Then here in verse 13, let us behave properly in the day. And the Christian who knows his Bible knows that if he ever reaches the point where they think, I am so strong in that area, it will never happen to me, then they have ignored the admonition of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand be careful, take heed that he does not fall. When you think that you are so strong that it could never happen to you, then you're tempting the devil to tempt you because the next verse says, and no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And so what God wants us to do is he wants us to take the truth of the word and let it shine deep in our souls so that we can see really what we are by nature, but also what we can be by faith as we depend upon the spirit to be a changed person. So I'm not surprised what Paul says to the church at Colossae. Listen to these words from Colossians 3. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self and his evil practices. And the tense of the verb in the original is such as keep on doing this over and over and over again. Keep on dying to self. This is what the writer of the Hebrews said to believers. Let us lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Peter said it in these words, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. 
And neither am I surprised when James says this in his opening chapter. He says, we're to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. And in humility, we are to receive the word implanted, which is able to save, present tense, sanctification, that is able to shape, save your soul. And so that's what Paul is speaking about here in Romans 13, verse 13. Now look at the verse again. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. There's three sets of two as expressed in the English text and is set in concrete in the Greek New Testament. Six sins, but they come in three different pairs. The first sin that he mentions is carousing. It's the Greek word kalmos, and it's used to describe wasteful and wicked behavior. In fact, some Bibles are a little more bold to pick up the fine nuance, and so the English Standard Version just, version just translates it orgies. And that's really the thought behind it. Now understand, the people in the first century would have immediately related because one of the principal gods that was worshipped in the Roman Empire, especially in the city of Rome, as we have uncovered, we archaeologists have uncovered through a number of various digs, was the god Bacchus. The god Bacchus was the god of wine. And just like we have an annual celebration of an event like Thanksgiving or Christmas, they had an annual celebration with the god Bacchus. And accompanied in that celebration were mass orgies across the city. And so when Paul writes to this first century church in Rome, many of its members would know that they were saved from these wicked behaviors. And many today can relate. They can relate to that time in Las Vegas, to that time in Daytona Beach, to that time in the college dorm where they lived in wickedness. The second sin with carousing goes with it, and he mentions drunkenness, not in carousing and drunkenness. Now, the two go together. Do you remember what the prophet Habakkuk said right out in the margin next to those two sins? Habakkuk 2.15. Again, he bleeds them together. He said, woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. So this verse speaks about making your neighbor drunk. Why? So you can look on their nakedness. And God knows that when people start drinking, they begin to lower their standards. One of the most comprehensive studies ever done on the use of alcohol on the college campus was done about five years ago by Harvard. And those researchers found that 80% now of college students drink. And in the study, they found that 54% reported regular hangovers. 44% of the students reported blackouts. 39% of the students said on occasion they did not know how they got home. 34% reported throwing up. 22% found out later that they had sexual intimacy. Not 22% had sex because they drank. But they found out after they drank that they were immoral. And throughout the Bible, God links Alcohol with sexual immorality. Hold your finger here and turn to the book of Proverbs chapter 23 for a moment. 
By the way, as you're turning there, I hope you saw the study that was just released by CBS just a few days ago. I think it came on Thursday or Friday of this past week. And the title of the study, again, a very comprehensive study, it's entitled, There is No Safe Level of Alcohol. That's what they're saying. I could have told you that without doing the study. There is no safe level of alcohol. That myth, a glass of wine a day will keep, you know, the heart in good shape is a lie, according to this study. But I know it's a lie according to God's word. Because God teaches us two things. One, don't get drunk. Two, don't use strong drink. And strong drink is not, again, the distilled liquors that come a thousand years after the Bible is written, but it's high alcohol content wine. When I was in a Jewish home for a Sabbath dinner, I didn't partake, but I respected them that they used what was called sweet wine. It was 2% wine, 2%, not the 8, 10 you typically buy in the grocery store. Why? Because those Orthodox Jews did not want to be guilty of using strong drink. And that's how they have understood it for over 3,000 years, that high alcohol content wine. We're not talking about the alcohol content in whiskey and rum, but just wine. High alcohol content wine is forbidden by God with the exception of giving to a dying, despairing man. Now, listen to what he says. He's speaking to his son here in Proverbs 23, and I'm sure he'd say the same thing to his daughter to keep her on the straight and narrow. Chapter 23, verse 19, listen, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. Listen to your father who begot you, And do not despise your mother when she is old. Again, in verse 26, he pleads with him. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. Here is a father warning his son, and here is a pastor this morning warning his people. And I hope you have ears to hear because I can promise you that this is not a warning that the alcohol industry will give to you. Like this father warned his son on that day. Now, he just told us in verses 20 and 23 that the sin of drunkenness can lead to poverty. In our own family, my mother's brother had the largest construction company in the city of Boston. And he drank it to nothing. And he died a pauper, a drunk, in a rented room about 40 miles away. That's what it does sometimes. And uh, people will literally come to poverty through it. But it also leads to sexual immorality. And so sandwiched here between his exhortation in verses 20 to 26 to stay away from alcohol and his warning against alcohol in 29 to 35, notice what he says beginning in verse 26. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. What a wonderful daddy who can say, live like me. Do like I do. Look, some of you dads, you got beer in the refrigerator, and you have that beer, and I'm telling you, you are being a terrible, terrible model to that son, to that daughter. You say you're making me mad, Pastor. I'm just telling you the truth. And people don't always want to hear it, but listen, you think you can drink in moderation, and it's just fine. No, you're drinking strong drinking. God says, don't do it. You know why people become alcoholics? Because wine is addictive. Beer is addictive. 
And that one can won't do what it used to do. And then it becomes two or three. And before you know it, your son thinks, well, dad can handle a bear. Why can't I? For a harlot is a deep pity, he goes on to say. And an adulterous woman is a narrow well, as he warns his son. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. And then he immediately picks up his refrain against alcohol again. Here's a father thinking and writing under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, and he brings these two sins together. He's saying, son, if you drink alcohol, it will cause you to go into the sin of sexual immorality. God knows that it plays with the mind. And an otherwise virtuous woman will let her morals down. An otherwise man who says, I'm, I'm going to be faithful to my wedding vows until death do us part, and he gets a little booze in him. And look out, before you know it, he's violated the marriage bed. And I can't tell you how many marriages as a pastor I've tried to put back together because of adultery. And in almost in every case, it started with alcohol. Evil people know if they want to seduce someone from the opposite sex, give them something to drink. So the first pair of sins is carousing and drunkenness. Let's keep reading here in Romans 13, 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Now, these two sins are closely related like the first pair. The word translated here, sexual promiscuity, immorality in some English Bibles, sexual impurity in others is the Greek word koite. We get our word coitus from it. It refers to the bed or to the bedroom. Uh, The King James says not in chambering, a little more literal, but that's the thought of it. Now, sometimes it can be used in a positive way to speak of the marriage bed. But very often it's used negatively where the marriage bed is defiled by sexual immorality, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Now, the second word is also closely related, and it comes from a Greek word that can literally be translated shameless. Sensuality or wantonness or shameless is what happens to a person once they begin to go down that road of drinking, once they begin to go down that road of sexual immorality. The things that used to bother them no longer bother them. And we have become a society of shameless people. People laugh at things that God calls evil. And friend, when you begin laughing at things that God calls evil, before long you'll be participating in that evil shameless. Like the people in Jeremiah's day where Jeremiah said they can no longer blush. No more red faces in America. Nothing shocks us anymore. So first a person joins the party and he gets drunk and then he commits some sort of immoral act and ultimately he doesn't care and he seeks other people to participate with him. He becomes an evangelist for sin. He is shameless. Let me just speak to the fathers who are to be the protectors and the heads of their home for a moment. And to the grandparents who should be a model for when your children, your grandchildren come to your home. What are you letting into your home? What kind of music do they hear you listen to? Is it that sensual beat? 
in some song that's talking about immorality. Oh, I don't really pay attention to the words. I just like the theme, you know, the, the, the music. What kind of television are you pumping into the home? God said, put these things off, lay them aside. The garments of carousing and drunkenness and sexual promiscuity and sensuality. What kind of internet sets are you, sites are you clicking on? When I was a boy, it was, you know, R-rated movies. There was one street in Worcester, Mass. And it was like the dirty street. And it was kind of hidden. And you had to go there to find those X-rated movies. And, and, and the Playboy magazines and other things were all behind the counter and hidden and now it's all up in the open. We celebrate it. We esteem it because we're living in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And Jesus said the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah, sexual promiscuity, and like the days of Lot, sexual perversion. My friend, that is our day. And now in the last three or four months, it is walking right into the front door of the evangelical church where we have all these leaders who are saying, look, if someone has same-sex attraction, it's okay, you should celebrate it. That's evil. That's wrong. That's the way a fallen man thinks. Look at the third category here. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, in sensuality. Notice the last two. Not in strife, in jealousy. Look at your text. Look at your Bible. Not in strife and jealousy. The word strife is sometimes translated quarreling or discord. And it's a Greek word that describes a contentious, argumentative person. Someone who wants to be first. They, ha- they want to have their own way. The Bible in a little short book written by the Apostle John called Third John spoke of one such fellow called Diotrephes who always wanted to be first. Those are the people who often cause uh, this kind of strife in the church. And then the second word is jealousy and the two go hand in hand. Sometimes it's, uh, it goes with strife and it's the Greek word zelos. We get our word zeal from it. Sometimes, again, it's used positively. He speaks in 2 Corinthians because they had a big turnaround uh, of the Corinthians who had a zeal for Paul's authority and for his teaching because they finally recognized that he was a man of God and the other folks were phony apostles. But very often it's used negatively of someone who looks with jealous eyes upon another person. So Christians, I think it's interesting he puts these two last because sometimes we're quick to condemn drunkenness and orgies and sensuality and sexual immorality, but he then adds these last two. Look, any of us is one breath away from any of these sins. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, and these sins will dull your armor They'll destroy your testimony. Finally, it's time to wake up. It's time to get up. Finally, it's time to dress up. Let's talk about dressing up. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, for the sin nature that is in regards to its loss. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the command. Now remember verse 13 represents who we were and verse 14 represents who we are now. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, the Romans would have fully appreciated this first century metaphor of putting something on. Again, it, it speaks of dress that, is, uh, that should accompany the kind of person that you are. And when we come to Christ, we are given a new righteousness. And God wants that righteousness that we are given in our position to begin to match itself in our practice. So Paul says, he, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. The sinless Son of God on the cross became sin for you. He bore your sin, my sin, in his own body in the cross. Why? So that we might become, because we weren't before, what we need, the righteousness of God. You want to go to heaven? You need to be as righteous as God. And the only way for you to have that righteousness is to be gifted that righteousness by grace. And when you receive Jesus, you become the righteousness of God. That's your position. And so Paul can say to the Galatians that they had clothed themselves with the righteousness of Christ. But then Isaiah the prophet speaks likewise. He says, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with robes of righteousness. So this is a theme that runs through both Testaments. But God also wants our practice to come in line with that. So in Ephesians 5, for instance, in verse 8, he says, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We're robed with Christ, and so now we are to wear Christ. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, when I cut the grass yesterday, I didn't do it in a suit. I wore clothes that were appropriate for the task. Now that I am born again and I have a robe of righteousness, God wants me in my practice daily, moment by moment, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, his full title. He is master. He is sovereign. He is Yeshua. He is human. He is Jesus who became man that he might shed blood, which is the penalty of sin, death. But he is also Christ. He's Messiah. He is Savior. He's the only one who can deliver you. So he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. The word flesh here is not the skin that covers your skeleton, but the fallen sinful nature within. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its desires, in regards to its loss. Now, the word loss in Bible can be used positively or it can be used negatively. For instance, the Spirit of God in James, he lusts after us. That is, he earnestly desires, the NASB renders it, same word though, he earnestly desires control over our life. We have to yield ourselves to that control, but he earnestly desires to fill you and to empower you. That's a positive use of the word. But the word is also used negatively in a number of contexts. Someone who lusts after material things. Someone who lusts after a person to whom they're not married. That's the negative connotation. And so scripture warns us, walk by the spirit that you might not carry out the desires of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh. And then he gives that list that again, any Christian can commit. So you need to ask, am I putting on Christ or am I making a provision for the flesh? Again, what am I watching? What am I reading? What am I listening to? What am I clicking on to? What am I logging into? And if you're clicking onto and logging into the sleaze and the filth of our day, you're not putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you drill on what the world is saying, you're going to be carried away into the world's way of thinking. The world is saying that sexual relationships before marriage are just fine. 
You know what they do? To, well, I, I won't even say it. I'm not even going to say it. It just makes me sick what they're doing on the college campuses for these young people when they come in, what they're giving them. Sexual relations, fine before marriage. Marital, marital affairs, it's a part of life. Just don't let your spouse know. Children, oh, they're wiser than parents. Fathers, they're portrayed as just basically stupid. Criminals, it's all a result of poverty or maybe sometimes racism. Women, oh, they're really smart when they leave the home and they pursue a career and they become a real significant person. We're doing just the opposite of all the things that God admonishes us to do. And they say that to preach the Bible today is old-fashioned and outdated, and it will drive people away. Yes, it will, but it's not outdated. And someday, every person is going to realize how true this book is. So you need to ask yourself, am I putting on the Lord Jesus? Ask yourself, have I done that this week? When you put on the Lord Jesus, you are acknowledging that without him, you can do nothing. You are living in dependence upon him. You are affirming that I need his strength. Don't tell me you're putting on the Lord Jesus if you haven't read your Bible all week. Don't tell me you're putting on the Lord Jesus if you're not talking to him and conversing with him throughout the day and going to him in prayer because that is a proud, independent life that thinks I don't really need his help. And yeah, you'll be conformed to the world. So how are we going to apply this passage and really the revelation? Because that's why I've stopped here right in the middle of the revelation. We're almost dead center. You say you've been preaching for a year and a half on revelation. That's okay. We'll get there. We'll finish it, God willing. But how are we going to apply revelation? Remember, blessed is the one who reads, who hears, who truly hears, so that he eats. Number one, remember that we're in a war. Remember, we are in a war. We must never go for a moment without our armor. I mean, would you drive without a seatbelt? Would you jump out of an airplane without a parachute? I hope not. Would you rappel down a mountain without a harness? Would you play a, a basketball game in your suit? We're in a war, and we need to put on the armor of light. Because the kingdom of darkness is growing. Secondly, we remember to walk by faith and not by sight. Remember to walk by faith and not by sight. You have to choose which system you're going to embrace. You see, Satan has his little package plan for you. And he's trying to appeal to your fallen nature. And you have to choose, is God's way really better or is man's way? And we have pastors today who are afraid to tell the truth. They are just afraid to tell the truth. They are afraid to offend people. And I would not want to be a called man of God because as a believer, as a pastor, as a teacher, the scripture says, I will incur a stricter judgment. And I don't want to give a partial message and just trim the message so that it's comfortable for people so we can fill in more seats in the auditorium. That's not what I want to do. And listen, you have to choose whether or not God's way is the best way or not. And Satan, his whole goal is to lie to you and to try to convince you that you're being ripped off and cheated and you're really missing out. And even a believer can be 
captured by that and come to the end of his life and stand before the Lord Jesus and realize how they wasted their life. Third, just remember, it's the theme of the revelation. He's coming back. And if Christ comes back, what is he going to find you wearing? Are you in a robe of righteousness? Have you been saved? You say, I hope so. I think so. Look, if you don't know so, you are in shaky ground. And if you got questions, come tonight to meet the pastor. But listen, you can be saved today. It's not a righteousness that is earned or achieved because our righteousness is like a filthy rag. Whoever keeps the whole law and but violates in one point of it is guilty of it all. Sin soils us, it separates us, it condemns us, and the soul that sins must die, but there's a substitute who died for you, and if you will come to him, he will dress you in his righteousness. But listen, when he comes back, are you going to be practicing that righteousness? Are you going to be living out the uniform that you have on? It's time to wake up. It's time to get up. And it's time to dress up. And when he comes back, if you're not in a robe of righteousness, you'll spend an eternity in hell. And when he comes back, and if you've received that robe of righteousness by grace through faith, but it's all dirty, you're going to shrink back in shame. And you're going to kick yourself and say, why did I listen to that stupid devil? Why did I give in to the foolish packagings of the world that are under control of the prince of the power of the air? Why didn't I, by faith, listen to what God says? Listen, what I'm talking about today is not popular because at the end of time, most people's hearts will grow cold and lawlessness, 1 John says sin is lawlessness, sin will increase and you'll be a minority. And I'm telling you, the funnel is getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And you have to decide how you're going to play the game. Now, Holy Father, we thank you today for your word, a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. I thank you that this is not simply what you have said, it's what you are saying. And you told us that the one who reads this book of the Revelation, one who hears it, truly hears it, And one who heeds it will indeed be blessed. So help us to pay attention. Father, I pray today for someone who's within the sound of my voice, maybe on one of our campuses, maybe live streaming, and they're really not sure that heaven is their home because in the back of their mind, they're not sure they're good enough. Father, I pray by your spirit, you convince them and show them that they're not good enough and never can be in themselves, that that's why you sent a Savior that we cannot save ourselves. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that with your own precious blood at a tremendous cost, you redeemed us and purchased us through the substitutionary work that you performed there at Golgotha. Thank you that because you were raised from the dead, you've been declared Lord to all, and it is plain in our sight that whoever will call upon your name will be saved. Help some dear soul today to say in simple faith, knowing that you cannot lie, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, for those of us who have crossed that line, whose lives have seen the fruit of righteousness 
wanting to learn what is pleasing in your sight. May we pursue even harder and faster and more earnestly in this process of sanctification. Help us to watch over our minds and hearts in this day of evil. Help us not to waste our lives that when we come to the end of it, that we will not be ashamed, but that we will hear the admonition of our Savior, well done, thy good and faithful servant. We ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And if you're here and you've received Jesus, maybe you're in Graniteville, maybe you're in the Bluffton Hillhead campus, and you've never made it public, I want to invite you when this hymn begins to leave your seat and come to the front row here. Some of you are listening to me and you've been saved, but your baptism is on the wrong side of your conversion. You've never been baptized since you've been saved. Well, the scripture teaches that you should be. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's bragging on him. It's bragging on him saying, I am saved solely by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If you're trying to run this race alone, it's impossible. God tells us to do it in the confines of a local Bible-believing church. And if we can be that church for you, then I'm going to ask that you leave and meet me here at the front. Matt's going to lead us. If you have a decision to make, step out now and meet me here in the front.